there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Who will be the EFL Player of the Year? We've got, like, all the receipts from seven years of covering the championship. That's What's right. your favourite receipt? If you hear anyone go, like, Luton will be strong at home, and that's where they need to get their points from, well... It wasn't where they got their points from, literally winning promotion. These are my predictions. Oh, here we go. I'm very concerned on a number of levels for Sheffield United. This is a harsh question to throw at you. No, I'm going to say no already. I've been sort of forced into having Leeds top. because probably... I'm flip-flopping on that. They probably well. weren't top of mine. And then George... George can be very persuasive. And also, he has credit in the bank because he went fucking early on Burnley last year so I was like <laughs> I've just got to, you're like Steph Curry I've just got to give you the ball okay yeah. mate Do you know we're recording let's have that let's keep that in I want to keep that in <laughs> you're, you're fucking hot I like it we can swear we can swear do you not like swearing no no that's fine you okay you okay yeah, you yeah. sure we can cut no I like swearing but well, okay. I've got that Colin Murray thing where I swear a lot oh right but you're, then never so ever coming? ever on camera on recording so I'm used to doing things where it's not right to swear so it he, might, you're home I'm probably not going to swear yeah, okay <laughs> alright well I, yeah I may swear anything could happen right uh, hello everybody welcome back to the Ripple Effect with me James Lawrence Alcott you yes you one of the 3,000 people that have given us a 5 star rating on Spotify you are good people you are kind people, you've stopped what you're doing, and you've clicked a couple of buttons, and you have no idea how much that affects people's lives, in particular mine. So, we are at 3k, we want 5k, Kai's told me, producer Kai has said that 5k is the one, like no one gets to 5k, okay? I've never seen it. So, exactly. And actually, you messaged me, so <laughs> Ali Maxwell joins me from Not The Top 20 podcast, we're going to talk about... Uh, newly promoted teams, the newly relegated teams, I guess, as well. And we'll have a little bit of championship chat as well. And actually, I'm going to show him my predictions that I did last night. But I keep flip-flopping on Leeds and Southampton, which Ali just revealed that you weren't sure about that one. You weren't sure about Leeds top. I'm pretty rattled by the top of the championship at the moment. So yes. uh, I'm finding it really difficult. I am I find personally, with the, with the slate of teams that have you know, fancied, it's much easier right now to pick holes in the teams and say why you don't think they will win the league right? rather than fully get behind a team and say that you will. And it's because they've all taken like pretty interesting approaches so far and seem in, in different levels of readiness Flux. for the season. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Well, we, we can talk about all of that. So this is a sort of championship special, but as I said, we will be having a look at some... Pretty severe ripple effects, possibly, from um, Luton Town in particular. Stick around for that. That's amazing. Um, Sheffield United, who've just had a bit of a nightmare uh, couple of days, I guess, when it comes to their star striker. And uh, who was the other team that went up? Burnley. But as I said... Want to talk you... about QPR at all? Um, or... I'm put myself on mute. Uh, do I want to talk about QPR at all? <laughs> yeah, do you know what? We probably should. 
because people I've get annoyed and I dodge it. If you've got questions, we're good to, we'll answer that as well. This is good. So this is great because we've got Ali. Ali is a presenter, so he asks questions as well, which I love. I love when people ask me a question. It's great. Um, but as I say, you guys who have um, clicked the button and followed us on Spotify, you are allowing this to be a successful podcast. So I just wanted to take a second. If you are one of those 3,000 3, people... Thank you so much. Absolute legends. Because, yeah, Ali messaged me. He went, 3K on. <laughs> what are you doing on there? <laughs> begging. <laughs> I, I am begging. I'm always on the line of begging. That will sort of drift into my um, YouTube comments every now and again where they go, yeah, Jay, you don't need to like. And actually, we, this is the new strategy with uh, my return to YouTube is to not really beg for the, the uh, subscribers don't well, comment below don't subscribe yeah, well, yeah. well actually so okay bringing it back to the championship I, I watched um, a couple of people on YouTube and saw their predictions mm-hmm. for the new championship season and both of them interestingly felt compelled to let the audience know that this is just a bit of fun right and don't take it don't take it too seriously it seemed as though they'd been sort of hurt from the previous season and so I started my video, which will be out this week, saying I'm apologising to absolutely nobody. Yeah, <laughs> like, nice. I'm going to put the uh, and this the prediction, especially mine this year with with QPR, who I could tease to the sort of near the end last year. I put them sixth last year. Yeah, which sounds awful, but actually they started off really well. So but I also, I think there's an extent to which saying that is is almost being a little bit like condescending to your audience. Like if anyone actually sits down and thinks about the nature of predictions or even better if anyone sits down and starts to do their own they realize like how fraught it is with issues how you know uncertain we can be at this stage of the season at the same time like because it's my job and those podcasts the prediction podcasts in particular are the most important it's the most important week of our year you know in terms of the podcast and finding new listeners uh, you know this is this is the most important part of my actual job. So I do want people to take it seriously. <laughs> right. Because right, I take right. it very seriously. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I like I believe that no one probably has spent as much time thinking about it, researching the one to twenty fours for the three EFL league. So I I do want people to take it seriously. But you know I think it's how you frame I think what they were saying these people is like it's how that how the comments are framed to them yeah like there's a lot of stuff where I was chatting to my mate about the other day where you get you get messages and you're like what are you saying to it like yeah. so for example I got I did a, a live on um the quality of every squad so right. forget the manager and, yeah. and how that would change. that would be a good I'd, be, I'd love to hear that from you guys like in terms of quality mm. and actually uh, me and Kai were looking at the um the values of the teams in the championship mm. that is fascinating to see as well because yeah the... i'd like to do my own values of championship squads that would I, be great i think i could do better than transfer marked yeah i think <laughs> much so... as i respect and love that website and use uh, it yeah, all day everyone every day. uses it right but i think the thing someone said like transfer market's value is is always wrong they never get it right and i was like yeah but they're probably the as off right on everyone so overall Completely. the sort of the, the the numbers are kind of fair enough but yeah Leeds Southampton and Leicester in terms of their, the market value of their squad it's like I mean Kai tell me in my ear if you can remember what it was but it's like 200 300 million yeah and then some of the teams down the bottom it's like 10 <laughs> yeah for sure yeah <laughs> like I mean the, the difference is is 250 they, Kai say of course there's incredible disparities you know there, there are teams uh towards the bottom of the championship that, that probably have never spent more than a million pounds on a player before in their history. Mm. You know, Luton Town are now a Premier League team and I'm pretty sure their transfer record is a million quid, possibly not even that. Like that is 
the amazing nature of, of that division. And the beauty of it is, thankfully, that the final league table won't be a ranking of what the squads look like on paper or what transfer marks value of the squad is. That's thankfully not how football works. There's a yeah. bit more to it than that. So that's where the sort of the mixture of research and opinion and, you know, understanding the context of the league and knowing the history of it can really help, I think, try and sift through a lot of the noise and sift through top line numbers on squad valuations or squads on paper because you know even last season Norwich and Watford came down they both finished mid-table yeah that there is so much that can derail a team that come down from the Premier League there's also people sometimes I think probably at this stage in particular when there's still so much squad churn people go like oh look at them they're really they're really struggling they haven't turned around that squad yet you know if a club gets it right in the next four weeks Things can look so different. Yes, as soon as the season starts. Yeah, which is it's kind of a shame when it comes to like these predictions because like that can massively change everything. And actually, I think so. I think as the years progress, so I, what was it twenty? I would say twenty sixteen is probably the first year I would have done, mm-hmm. you know, season predictions on things. And as the years progress, and in particular, say the championship, I will. There are certain things or like unwritten rules of the league, right? That will affect my my predictions i do want to ask you the question of like what is your formula for for your predictions but in terms of those things and i wonder if there's things that pop into your mind but when i was looking at those teams uh for, for the championship i was like 60 percent of those managers will not be there at the end of the season right right yeah, well, yeah. you know 50 percent, let's say so as much weirdly for me and then you've got things like money in the bank that you can go and spend you've got yeah. the loan market yeah. where you've got a lot of the top six sides or full stop Premier League teams loan market's got... barely opened yet in the champ there's so much still because they're come. all on pre-season tours yeah. with those you yeah. know with those teams so so that's a big part of it um make 100% that... that the relegation i think is most affected by what you're talking about here because i think i've got a good hit rate at picking teams that look in trouble to start the season who might start the season in the bottom 3 because we know that team's in the bottom three, 99% of the time we'll sack their manager and get a new one in. Yes. And we do not know who that manager yes. will be. So, like The amount of times that you'll get to the end of the season, a team's finished like 15th and their fans will go like, ha, idiots. And you'll be like, yeah, lads, you were bottom yeah. after eight weeks. Because your manager was in. terrible and your squad was in terrible shape. And then you turned it all around. And then, t- like, how do you predict that? Totally. Yeah, well, that's it. So, like, for example, Hull City, I, I like um, Liam Rossini. And I've yeah. just, I've just had. A, I bet you've had this moment in the past. So I did, I did my predictions last night. I'm really worried. I've said Leroy Rossini in that video now, but I'm not certain. <laughs> yeah. But that's his dad. The so I've interviewed him, and I was like, "Wow, you are an incredibly articulate, mm. intelligent, uh, you know, emotionally intelligent person." Yeah. But in the, the, the house of which he lives in, of Hull City, ab- like I can't see him getting to the end of the season. I can see a seven-game winless run, yeah. and so they get him out and bring in. A, a manager that I've never heard of. And then the other side of it, Cardiff City. Bulo, like, I've never heard of this dude. Mm. There's no way, like, I'm going to say it. I'll say it <laughs> in my chest. There's no way this lad s- makes it to the end of the season. And I know that's, I know how that sounds. And I get it. It's like the English guy doesn't understand, hasn't done his research. I get it. But in terms of the, like, unwritten rules of the championship and the EFL, it is a miracle mm. if he survives. And same, same with QPR. Same with, like, if Ainsworth gets to the end of the season, yeah. that is my barometer for success. Because if he is still the manager, then he's probably done okay. Right. I, one, of the, one of the questions we had, actually, which you may be able to answer is, 
now that Sir Les is gone and uh, the co-owner as well, quite a lot of change off the field. We were wondering, like, who would, who's in charge of sacking Gareth Ainsworth or not? Like, who's actually running the football side of the club outside of Ainsworth? Because we're a bit concerned it's turning into Ainsworth FC. And yeah. overall, that, that just cannot be the right way for the club to, to move forward. And it, this is where my main question about QPR comes from. What has happened? Like, I've never seen such an unravelling of a football club in the space of less than a year, like nine months, less than a year, six to nine months. I've never seen anything like it. A club who, like, in my sort of general perception of clubs in the context of the championship, obviously QPR have had to cut their cloth a little over the last few years. They've taken a different approach. But within that, I still felt there was an identity. And I felt there was a kind of composure within the club. They they knew more or less what they needed to do and how they needed to do it. And they also knew the issues that that might have in terms of realistically making the top six or making the top two. But it still felt like everything was more or less pottering along pretty nicely to this point where now QPR feel like the league's like absolute underdog. Oh, what's happened? How's that? How does that happen? I've never seen that happen before. And everyone seems to just accept it. Be like, yeah, yeah, we're the underdogs now. We've got Ainsworth in charge, which is going to have to be the underdogs. I mean... It's interesting that you say that. I, I, in terms of being the underdogs, I don't think. I think that's a problem. Again, in terms of the alchemy of making predictions, a Rotherham, absolutely zero disrespect to Rotherham, and I hate when people say that. But <laughs> Rotherham fans will know where they are. Mm. They know that you know if they stay in the league again, then that's great. And you know if they're winning one out of three games, that's that's cool. To a point, <laughs> and that's four out forty six points. The uh, Whereas Sheffield Wednesday and QPR, mm. like I've seen that toxicity like numerous times and I'm sure Sheffield Wednesday fans have as well, just because that, you know, you expect better, you mm. kind of want better and expectations is everything in terms of football fandom and, and in terms of the, the pressure that that applies to your club. And I think that's, that's where I, I don't agree with you in terms of people. Th- I get that we don't, think that we're in, in a good place right but i don't think that we are uh, i don't think qpr fans are accepting of that right and so that's why that's <laughs> although, concerning as well although my although my predictions i i had to make a choice where i'm like am i am i that guy who's that sensible that he puts yeah. it qpr in the bottom three right no i'm not that sensible <laughs> i'm not having it no i'm not that guy i'm not going to be that yeah. person but all the logical reasoning mm makes complete sense for what you're saying and what I, what it feels like is that it just got we went with pretty and pretty had no substance to it especially once you know we talk about ripple effects once Beale left mm. you had a whole group of players there who on paper are, are talented yeah certainly t- like Ethan Laird Tyler Roberts who've gone to Birmingham you know Birmingham fans were like ooh they're Premier League. They're yeah. exciting. Like you say, getting past the noise. And Ethan Laird is infuriating because he's wonderful. Mm. Like he's a wonderful footballer. Tyler Roberts, I don't want to talk about Tyler Roberts. The, <laughs> the, but we, we totally lost our way. Critchley came in and that was kind of sticking to the idea of what QPR had become, which I really liked, which everyone really liked, which was yeah. you get good coaches with good contacts who've got a good pedigree in terms of being at Liverpool or yeah. being at Aston Villa or whoever it might be, and you play good football, and that allows you to bring in these loan signings because they want to come and play for your team because yeah. they want to play great football. But I think we got... I th- The theory I had was like we got to this sort of Chelsea 
scenario that they had last year where uh, we're, we're too good to go down. Yeah. We're definitely not going up. And so with that, in, in a championship uh, competition where you you do have to be on it, like mm. it's a slog, it's a marathon, but you do have to be on it to win football matches. Yeah, we We just slipped and slipped and slipped and slipped and then they panicked. And like they right. do with, like a lot of clubs do with managers, they go, okay, you're not working. What's the opposite of you? Yeah. And the opposite of you was Gareth Ainsworth. And I, I said this when we got, when he got the job, I did a video on it. And I said, either he, it, you're backing him. Either he galvanizes that squad and he's able to tweak his style of play a little bit. It's always going to be direct. Right. And it works, then fine. But, but it, it doesn't fit. It, they, they shut the bed a little bit. But they also don't. I don't know who's in who's actually in, in charge, charge of yeah. recruitment this summer, but the recruitment hasn't been what I expected in so, terms of building a what you'd consider like a sort of prototype Ainsworth team. I know there's still time. The thing and I would say, the, but I mean, the, nothing worries me more in the EFL than when a manager goes up a division and the only transfers he can think about making are players that he's worked with before in the league below. That's just like the. That I'm allergic to it. that, but I mean, I want to. I want to ask you a question. I don't know if you'll agree with this or not. So just to answer then. that last question yeah. really quickly, because I know all waffled. Yes, Les has gone, but also the reason why Les has gone. There are rumours that it was a style of play thing, but it's also he was getting so much abuse, yeah. and the fans had gone after him a bit like they'd gone after the board. And the board, as uh, as poor as it's been, we aren't a huge club, and they do still le- like basically throw money away yeah. every single month yeah. to yeah. keep the lights on and they're not going to be able to sell it. So when we just shout, sack the board, mm. for me, it's a little bit silly. Um, but Ainsworth, I think, is generally quite good at going, oh, that's... So there's this guy called Ben something who's, I think, head of performance now. So, like, that's his role. We have, um, I want to say, Andy Bellick, who I think is, like, the sort of head scout. So as much as you don't... like, As much as Les Ferdinand was that guy, mm-hmm. he would have, have had people who were actually yeah, yeah. doing the analysis and finding those people. So I think Ainsworth is willing to listen to those people. But in terms of being sacked, I think that'll probably be Lee Hoos. That'll be the CEO, I'd imagine, if that decision needs to be made. It's all a bit concerning. Uh, Last thing on QPR, I believe strongly that if the board had held their nerve and just put their fingers in their ears during the, the bad spell under Critchley and not sacked Neil Critchley, then I think you'd have got to the end of the season. Things may have improved. I don't think... You know, I think you'd have stayed up. And I think this summer, everything would be feeling so different. I think the vibe around the club would be so different. I think everyone, fans, squad, manager, staff, board would have been able to just chill out a bit, relax a little bit. Yeah. And probably... And get a new manager, but on your terms. Like, if you do want... Like, if it's not been good enough for Critchley. Now, I know you like Critchley. I know you're a Critchley lover. I am. I am. I just think he's excellent. I know. What I would say, he's... He's not, and I know this. You'll roll your eyes at this, and I understand why you will. He's not exciting. Yeah, <laughs> like he's not exciting, and mm. he didn't from his interviews. And I and I hate going to those interviews, but for sort of QPR as a club and the fan base needed a bit more of pizzazz. Yeah, I see that. Like I, the name that popped into my head straight away there was like John Gregory like you need like yeah. they'd rather have a geezer or yeah. they'd rather have someone who's got a little bit more chat now the problem we've got with Ainsworth is he's probably a little bit too far the other way which like <laughs> and he keeps going he, he keeps going oh put it on me put it on me but yeah. he's kind of he's kind of putting it on them by saying put it on me put it on me <laughs> but like bless him like I know he's like trying to do his best and I'm, the thing I'm hanging on to 
is that something there is enough quality there like i get what george so and by the way if no and if if you none of you guys like uh know about not the top 20 podcast like it is the authority on the efl and uh, we were saying on the walk here when it comes to the predictions so ali and george uh, host the podcast i listen to it every single week it's fantastic and it's for me it's the f- when the predictions come out that's the 442 previews coming Lovely. out of the championship it's brilliant so <laughs> make sure you go listen to it but i i was listening to you guys and you were talking about you know taylor richards chair and willock all needed to to sort of play my hope is that yes he's always going to play long ball and it's going to be direct to a point but direct direct can be one touch football yep and i'm praying that something kind of clicks what's also really scary about qpr and we will move on from it but a lot of you guys probably know about me so this is my only moment in the season to talk about it because i don't like talking about it when it's not going well is the, what is the problem is that our first game is supposed to be at home against Watford. It's actually now away. Right. And then after that, the fixtures after that are actually quite tricky as well. So you've got people kind of fearful, you know, me going on Twitter on Saturday and seeing 5-0 against Oxford going, uh-oh. Mm. And then and then a really tough set of fixtures at yeah. the start. So it has to be, if there's anyone that's going to kind of, you know, utilize that siege mentality. It's probably someone like Gareth Ainsworth, yeah. but a lot of the things that you would put together to add up, right? Don't, yeah, he, don't add up to a lot. That mentality is such a strong, can be such a strong motivating factor for a manager to use, and and a manager's ability to motivate their squad is a massive, massive part of getting a lot out of a team. It's not just about tactics. It's not just about transfers. It's a whole cauldron, and that's a big part of it. And the job Ainsworth did at Wickham on that front in particular, was about as good as, as any in the EFL that I can think of. Mm-hmm. But that's not the right mentality for QPR to have. I right, strongly I believe that. Not, not because of the squad and because of their my perception of their sort of size of the club in the league that they're in. I just, I can't abide by that being the way that QPR operate. Sorry. No, I, I, I completely, my head is, is saying exactly what you're saying, but I'm not allowed to use my head okay. in this scenario. So Let's leave it. Let's move on. Okay, so this is the Riffle Vet. We're going to talk about the newly promoted teams. Uh, word of the week. We always have a word of the week. Uh, and so, yeah, the word of the week this week is sustainability. Oh, nice. How, what are your thoughts? So the ability to be sustained, supported, upheld or confirmed. Now, we like to have a word of the week because sometimes there's a lot of words that are used in the sort of footballing vernacular and often there this is a good one like stability is another one actually which people i'll I'll never forget i won't i won't hang them out to dry there's someone who would be on who basically got marginalized at bbc and then was on football focus and he (laughs) have you figured it out no and when he didn't know about a club yeah like i've said this in numerous things as well sometimes you'll talk to people and they'll their eyes will glaze right and i go they're panicking because they need to talk about what they're, uh, they're talking about and they don't know anything about it. Um, you'll probably spot it later on. So with me, <laughs> not with Ali. Anyway, stability. Go, what the, this club, what this club needs right. is stability. stability. Yeah. And stability for me is ultimately winning games for a bit. Sure. Um, yeah. But anyway, sustainability is a little bit different. And, you know, we spoke about Rotherham briefly there. But in terms of teams going up to the Premier League and teams staying in the championship or staying in any league that they want that the sustainability of the money that they're gonna yeah. throw out or, or utilize sorry throw out's the wrong word mate when um, when when the word sustainability is used to talk about anything to do with football finance it's used i think completely wrong like in in, in a way that's completely wrong for 
what the actual definition of the word is. Like we have a basically, we've now created a sort of uh, a football sustainability and everyone more or less thinks they know what that looks like. But a lot of the clubs that are championed as running sustainably still lose 30 million quid a year and yeah. their owner just plugs that gap. Like well, Brent, if you look at Brent, Brentford and Brighton are just my go-to on so many levels when sure. we talk about football because they're, they're incredible. They're amazing. I'm, in, in my job and personally as a as a football lover, I'm obsessed with Brentford and Brighton. I don't see how you could not be. But they lose so much money. And they have done forever. They just right, do. Yeah, yeah, their, yeah. their their owners are incredible. What they've done, the the systems they've put in place in order to sustain their success. Yes. A sustainable success is a different thing. A football right. a sustainable like success in terms of how the team operates and and an upwards trajectory if you like it's not based on financial sustainability so there's i think there's a split in the in the understanding of these so words is there a team in the EFL this is a harsh question to throw at you no i'm going to say no already so there's no team that you believe is sustainable there there are there are every year Rotherham there are probably less than 5 clubs in the EFL that either turn a small profit or break even every club says we're working to a we 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 want to start being a break even club as far as i know almost no clubs have sustained that it's just so hard because the temptation to spend money in any manner of ways is is too much and in the most part there are ways of of clubs um through owner funding um sort of plugging the gaps now that the amount of losses that clubs make is you know there's a very very wide range and league 1 and league 2 is very different to the championship but no, I think there's there are clubs who genuinely take sustainability seriously, who don't... I'm not saying every club makes stupid, boneheaded financial decisions that puts their club at risk, but even the clubs whose core values are, let's say, Exeter City, who are fan-owned, who put so much energy and money into improving their facilities and their youth system and you know a really holistic approach that isn't based on the transfer market and isn't based on needing success every season, straight away, short-term stuff. Even they like really struggle to fund the club in League One. Even, we just talked about Newport County in League Two, fan-owned, they've been... They've been punching above their weight budget-wise just to be a League Two club. They recorded a, mi- a million quid loss last year, and they can't—they don't have a benefactor to fund that. So this year they slash the budget. They have to, yeah, because m- money doesn't grow on trees. That's like, the mad thing with football, in particular, obviously, is that it's so that that ability to bring in money mm. is so precarious because it's often built around your squad. Yeah, you know, coming back to QPR again, like. In terms of the players that we're kind of bringing in now, and that, like you say, that move away from a very clear thing where it was like, I always think. So, what was great about Brentford, who you know you just explained, like, was still losing money, is that people would go, "Don't sell Watkins. Yeah. If we keep Watkins, we'll go up." Or, Don't yeah. sell Malpai. Yeah. Don't sell like it's time and time again. But they were kind of like, well, "Yeah, but you, if you make that sale, that safeguards you for a good few years." Mm-hmm. And that was something that kind of we were doing time and again. But if you don't have those players, or those <laughs> yeah. players don't kind of work for you, yeah, we've we've got many f- sort of podcast phrases, I guess, or maxims. A lot of them are designed to kind of wind up the average football fan and the sorts of things that that they say. Because obviously, we come at it from a slightly different perspective and a less emotional one. But one of them is selling players is good. Yeah, sell your players. Yeah, sell your players. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. You ha- like Sunderland are such an interesting case at the moment. They are. I've never seen anything quite like it. They've signed four, five, five, five players this summer who 19, are they're 18, 17, 18, yeah. 19 and 20. Yeah. Last year they had one of, if not the youngest team in the division. Like uh, they're a club who 20, the average age is twenty three point seven. Yeah. I think they're a club who historically have never taken this approach because they've always felt like, well, we've we've actually got a decent like organic revenue. We've got a massive fan base. We actually generate quite a lot of money, so we we probably don't need to to operate this way because we can impact the transfer market in our league. We are one of the bigger teams in the league. We don't need to do this. Um, but this is the path they've decided to go down, and I'm fascinated to see if it works at a club of that size and of that history. Because, of course, Brighton and Brentford's uh, choice to go down this route was born out of necessity. They were just EFL clubs like any other standard EFL clubs until their their path got changed by by the, the quality of the way they operate. With Sunderland, it's interesting because I, I love what they're doing, but they haven't sold a player for a transfer fee for, for like many windows now. And at some point, in order to keep doing what they do, yeah, they have to sign Jack. They have to sell Jack Clark. Right. They have to sell the guys that they're currently obsessed with that they can't imagine living without in order to sign the next three or mm. four. Yeah. One of whom might, or two of whom ideally would end up being let, you know, that it's but like. You're allowed to, but it allows you to spend a little bit more on that young lad. Exactly. They're better seeds. Oh, so yeah. you're going to grow a better plant. If you go on Brentford's <laughs> transfer marks page from the last sort of four seasons that they were in the championship. It was amazing. It's beautiful to look yeah, back yeah. at because yeah. it is, as you say, it's like, sell one player at first they were selling players that we really rated and we felt like they weren't getting enough for them but they were still selling them so that that grates a little bit when you're like oh because that's another thing fans get upset about like how could you know why are Burnley bidding nine million pounds for Jack Clark he's worth 20 okay well actually a player's valuation is dependent on a few things right. you know and uh it's not necessarily you know transfer marks do a great job with their squad valuations but <laughs> There isn't just like one rule of how to value a football player. It's, yeah. It depends on what someone's willing to pay and what the selling club is willing to accept, right? That's basically the thing that makes the biggest difference. It's not like you are a player, you have 90 for pace and 83 for dribbling oh, well, that, and you yeah. are worth £10 million. Yeah, pounds. Yeah. Like that's such rubbish. And if you go back and look at Brentford, there was a window where they sold a few key players for what we thought was a little bit less than maybe they were they they were worth because they just needed to get the wheels turning and also because they were a historically small club and they weren't a popular club to buy from. And then the next summer, they sold a couple of players for a little bit more and they were able to buy players for a little bit more than they had done the one before. And each summer, it just goes up and up and up. It's it's amazing. If you hear anyone go like, Luton will be strong at home and that's where they need to get their points from. Well, it wasn't where they got their points from, literally winning promotion in the Manajai I honestly think he's a Champions League level player. I totally agree. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, The phrase make or break comes to mind when we think of championship teams entering the Premier League. Gaining promotion can be a propitious 
opportunity oh. for clubs. I know who need who need the cash injection to make the next step in their project. It's also a status symbol. A team can become recognised, accepted, and even put on a pedestal. Brentford, Brian, if they make waves in the Premier League because they will almost certainly be seen as underdogs. But failing in, uh, falling into the trap of becoming capricious Whoa. is something we also see when, when they do reach the dizzy heights of England's top flight. Delicious. This is where teams have failed themselves in the past and have long-lasting repercussions that affect themselves, but also the outer footballing world, 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 world. Whatever you do, don't affect the outer footballing world if you can help it. Yeah, insulate at all times. So let's get to it. The newly promoted teams. Mm -hmm. Luton. So kick off with a ripple effect here. Luton's December fixtures will decide the title top four and relegation places this season. Luton have been given special exemption to not have an underflower, underfloor heated pitch this season, despite it being a Premier League rule. The rule known as K22 states that undersoil heating is required in all pitches, but Luton are allowed to bypass it this season. This means that their winter fixtures, especially those in December, could be postponed if the pitch freezes over. Now hear this. In December, Luton is scheduled to play. Manchester City and Arsenal within the space of five days. They're also due to play Sheffield United, Newcastle United, Chelsea and Bournemouth. If these matches get (laughs) cancelled over frozen pitches, it could really affect the schedules of the big teams, but also uh, given teams lower down a game in hand. This could affect everything from manager sackings to January signings. So watch out for that one. Mate, they had a home game postponed in December 2022 because of a frozen pitch. So this is... How do you know that? <laughs> <laughs> because it was a, it was, that's it one was of those the frozen things. weekend where basically all the games right. were called out. But, but they what, did. So uh, it, is, it's, it is a strong... There is a possibility. Let's not say strong possibility. Also, as an aside, it's so good that the City and Arsenal games at Kenilworth Road are at that time of year. Because let's, let's hope that the games don't get cancelled because of a frozen pitch. Yeah. It's, it's they won't like, like it up and will they? I'm... I'm I have absolutely no doubt that Luton Town will be will do everything within their power outside of installing underfloor heating to make sure those games go ahead. Like I'm sure there are ways, I'm sure there's technology. The Premier League are pretty strict, I think, with clubs, like not seeming tin pot. Like that's one of the Premier League's big things. They want to project this idea that, sure. that their product is the best in the world. So they will be making sure Luton don't have any games postponed due to a frozen pitch, right? And that's gonna make those fixtures so good. Like the difference between Luton playing them in but August would be good because it'd be new and the atmosphere at the Kenny would be unbelievable. Uh, what, what but you... December's amazing just because it's, you know, it, it probably comes back to old school English football stereotypes, which have been summarily rubbished over the years. But it comes back to like, will the Arsenal players yeah, will they like, like it, it up and... in the in the how, Well, how do you one? feel about that one? Because I think that's that will be the so when we're talking about people panicking yeah. about talking about Luton. Mm. That is the go-to thing that people are going to be doing. Like pundits will be going, "Oh, the tiny little ground." Yeah. Like how much people don't weight want to go do there. you give that? Yeah, a couple of interesting things. Firstly, I don't always buy hugely into that stuff. I sometimes think that, as I think you've kind of alluded to, it can be what I would suggest is uh, lazy punditry because it you just can't really be bothered to find out anything else about the team. Yeah. So you just pick 
we've been busy focusing on people the won't like going two. to Kenilworth Road because it's small. Yeah. At the same time, when it comes to the Kenny, I was there for the playoff semi final against Sunderland. Like, in my opinion, the reason Luton turned that semi final around in the second leg was because of footballing factors, tactical factors, basically. They scored two goals from set pieces because, on average, they were three inches taller than Sunderland's team of beautiful midgets, like yeah. incredible midgets. And, and Sunderland had a hell of a lot of injuries, didn't they? For point? sure. Didn't have any fit centre-backs. Luton, big side, scored two headers, done. However, I was there. And, like, Ahmad Diallo in particular, just my opinion, but from what I saw, found it very tough, that game, because the fans targeted him. He was their star player. He'd impacted the first leg. The... He was playing out wide, so he's close to the... To literally, the stat, The first fan sits like a metre from the touchline. Maybe less. That's what it seems like. It's tight. And that is rare. It's, it's got just, that Loftus Road vibe, isn't it? But like, yeah. but even more... Probably even more. <laughs> and even he, more. you know, actually, on a serious note, he got like... I think a fan sort of pushed him and he sort of, he got knocked off, off the side of the pitch and a fan like shoved him. It was, you know, it's scenes that yeah, we do not encourage. Say, yes, of course. But it, it affected him. Now, it... Does that mean it's going to affect whole teams and stop them playing the way that they play and exerting their incredible technical ability and advantage over Luton Town? Probably not in the main, but it's going to be quite fun to watch. The second thing to mention is, just quickly, I love stuff like this. The go-to will be um, Luton are going to be, if anything, tough to beat at home because Kenilworth Road is small and weird and unusual and wonderful and a throwback. Luton picked up more points away from home last season in the Championship than they picked up at home, which is, you know, across the EFL. There'll be like three or four teams across 72 teams who get more points away than they do at home. It's very rare because home advantage is a, a provable thing. Everyone knows that. Luton were more suited to playing away from home than they were at home last season. It comes back, I think, to squad makeup, tactics, that sort of stuff. So I think that's quite interesting. If you hear anyone go like, Luton will be strong at home and that's where they need to get their points from, well... It wasn't where they got their points from, literally winning promotion. Yeah. I think, like, in terms of not, if you under what you understand to be a, a Saturday's football for a Premier League player these days, yes, there's a lot of noise, but they're far away. Yeah. So I think, I think the proximity, I think there is something in that. Mm -hmm. Definitely saw that. I remember QPR beat Chelsea and uh, Juan Mata came over to take a corner, and you just. Like, it sounds like hyperbole, but like he, cr like he hated it. Yeah, yeah. Like it was, I've never seen it. Be I've never seen it to that level before or since, really. Because I think other players kind of get used to it a little bit more. But some of those, like Juan Mata in that game, mm. and well, look, we hate Chelsea, so like it was, it was right. intense. That's it. Those but moments it, don't happen for ninety minutes of a whole game. Yes, like they're, exactly. They're generally situational depending on the score and the opposition and or, or what an opposition player has or hasn't done like one of the things was that Ahmad was falling over a lot and that was what wound up Luton fans yeah. like, and also playoff semi-final second legs right. are exactly. as electric as it gets so they are an amazing fan base but I'm just not buying they're going to be like turned up to 10 all the, all time. the time like yeah, yeah. you know well, I think that's when Rama goes and takes a corner on a on a on the 10th match day of the season like mm. people aren't going to be going like whoa yeah. He's struggling to handle this. Because when you look at like the squad, see, this is the thing in terms of the sum of the parts being very important here. Now, so first of all, like a, a stat on in terms of teams going up from the uh, the championship up and how, how they sort of get on. 28% of teams that go up through the playoffs stay up. Mm. So, I mean, it's up against them already. 
But then you look at how much money they've spent. Now, generally, the money that needs to be spent is around, uh, well, you need at least 50 million to be spent to give yourself a sort of a decent chance. They've spent 14 million so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of those players are players that have kind of come back already. Although, you know, kind of coming back to sort of the sustainability of it all, in terms of the, the players that they brought in, Nakamba was there last season. But they bought actually quite a few players from, you know, championship sides. Ogbeni, who was fantastic yeah. for Rotherham last year. Giles has come in, who I know you've been a, like, a big fan of for, for a long time. Yeah. And again, in terms of like market value, it's not going to be exciting. But in terms of the sort of the sum of the parts here, you've got someone like Giles, who's got great delivery there. Mm-hmm. The depth isn't there, but in terms of the the style of play that you'll see, that was like I saw them against us. Now everyone looked good against us last year, but that sort of the back three, the energy of the wide players, mm-hmm. Carlton Morris up top as well. There was a lot of sort of durable, energized players who were knew what they were doing, and when you know what you're doing, you can do it quicker. Yeah. Are we sort of all the stats go your bottom, Luton? Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it? Well, I, I always think that understanding the, the context of all the other teams in the league is quite important when you're doing your placings rather than just looking at one team's context and going, that means you're bottom. Um, for example, Sheffield United, there's quite a lot to be concerned about, particularly some of the news over the last few days and what I perceive to be a lack of stability at that club compared to at Luton, just in terms of, of the mindset off the field and everyone pulling in the same direction. So um, personally, I, I think as I sit here right now, I'd probably say Luton will finish above Sheffield United, whether that's 19th or wherever is kind of a, a separate question. Mm. The thing to say about Luton's transfer business, and I say this with a lot of confidence, with no inside information, but just looking at the names that they've signed, I think Luton's approach to the transfer market this summer is to buy players that they know can be among the best players in their position in the championship for next season, if necessary. Because there is no point treating your one season in the Premier League like it's the most important year of all time and everything else after that can come later. Luton Town, within the last 20 years, have been minutes, hours away from extinction, minutes away from, from being wound up, stopping existing as a club due to financial issues. They've been in the National League like in the last... 10, 12 years. So the context of, of the club, the mentality of the club is the first place anyone should start talking about Luton's transfer business. And that's what their approach is. And they do that. The reason it's smart is they haven't been a big club in the championship. They haven't been able to flex any muscles even in the championship transfer transfer market. Mm. Going to the Prem is a way of them moving up the food chain so that if and if and when they do go back down to the championship they're in a different spot. They can be seen a little bit differently. They can actually affect, you know, they can take players from bottom half championship clubs. They can pay fees for them, which they never were able to do previously. So that's how I see the names that you've uh, mentioned, Ogbene, Giles. They wouldn't have been able to impact these guys in the transfer market because bigger championship clubs would have signed them this summer. Look, this is this is Burnley. This is New, uh, Norwich City. Like, I think what's interesting, I, I there's things, you have regrets, in uh, YouTube when you kind of put things forward sometimes. And one thing I did, and actually with a lot of teams, Bournemouth, Fulham as well, if you actually think of those clubs, like Fulham, it, Fulham, this is a long time ago now, but they were, a, you know, a third division team and then, mm-hmm. you know, have made their way. Bournemouth, same. Mm-hmm. 
Burnley, you know, a bit bigger. But a lot of those teams understood, in particular Burnley and Norwich City, they understood that like going up that first year, that wasn't the time mm-hmm. to spend. The second time Norwich went up, I was kind of like, come on. Go on then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. At, yeah. At some point, you should have a, a, a solid little go at it. And mm. coming back to those stats, what I thought was interesting is like, generally you need to spend over 50 million to stay up. But that in itself is also a dangerous thing. Like 78 million is the average over the last five years. And of those 15 teams, seven have stayed up whilst eight have been relegated. Yeah, I just, I personally don't think this, those stats need to be taken as any sort of gospel. Like I just... No, no. But it, I know you're, you're not saying that. What I'm but, saying... You know, anything of like you have to spend 50 million or more to stay up. I just, I personally, it's just not at all the way that I think about things. <laughs> but what it's saying is that essentially... Unless you're Brentford, because the only team that the only team that spent under fifty million and has stayed up, yeah, has been Brentford, right? And they Do- had a real tactical clarity and an understanding of themselves as a team and what their strengths were and how they might go about picking up points, even as underdogs, and the, the sort of marginal or not marginal in in some cases gains that they could get from set-piece situations by having a certain type of player and, and, and sort of gaming set-piece situations to to their advantage and getting a couple of extra goals here and there from that, which means a couple of extra points here and there. Like, you know, that there's I see Luton as having a real clarity about them tactically, a, a chemistry in the team, which is so hard to measure. But chemistry, I think, is really important. And where it, when it comes to what should teams do when they move up to the Premier League in the transfer market... Uh, I think that if you're a team in good shape like Luton, where you just have key players, even if they're not known for for dominating at, at the level above, I think it's the worst thing you can do is to try and buy seven or eight or nine or ten new players. I, th- I certainly think you need to add some quality. Of course you do. That's That's the game. But add where you can people that, players rather, that you know as close to certain as possible will be starters. So they have to be starters, I think. Don't add players because you think they're a nice profile and they look nice, but you've got a good player in that position. Buy players, three players, let's say, who are going to be starters, who are just simply better than the players that you have. That, for me, is the best thing that you can do if you're a a Luton, for example, at this point in time, rather than buy 11 players, get to January, actually only three or four of them are starters. The other six are just sitting there on double the wages of anyone else yeah, who haven't contributed anything to this football club with a group of players that have done everything for this football club sitting there and both groups are a bit unhappy yeah. and the, and you sort of grate up against each other. Yeah. So I think chemistry is really important and it's it's fascinating because it's very difficult for us to measure from the outside. Yeah, but but I think it's, it's about how... I totally agree with you, by the way. Like it's how do you want to pick that apart? Like, pick apart that chemistry mm-hmm. that's got you to that point mm-hmm. whilst... That, that balance between yeah quality and sort of the energy to keep going because I think that's the thing to remember as well is if you feel like you're kind of on a journey together you're going to show grit grit mm-hmm. is so important because you are going to lose games mm-hmm. you're going to lose games regularly you're going to lose games heavily yeah probably s- at least half of your games you will lose yeah so to be able to cope with that and mm-hmm. go hey guys we're still, look remember last year we still we were together yeah you've seen it so many times that it doesn't work out. And actually, if you think of the teams, I think that's the the sort of key behind last season 
was so you had Nottingham Forest who just about did the absolute <laughs> antithesis of what we're talking about, but Fulham and Bournemouth. I'm re- again another thing I was annoyed about. I put them bottom two because it was what we we're talking about maybe before we started recording where I was like I listened I had a look at a, a few others and I didn't go with my gut on that. Yeah. But what they both did, and this comes to the broader point of teams going up and coming down. They had a lot of players that had been there and kind of mm-hmm. gone down with them and seen what it was like. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fulham obviously absolutely tore up the division. Bournemouth had took them a couple more, a couple goes. But then when they went up, they were kind of ready to go again, and you didn't have to rip everything up. You could just add a couple. Yeah. I mean, well, but for the way that Fulham did it, I think is probably the well, certainly the best recent example of what I've just said that I think the best approach is. They added, I mean, Pereira. Yeah, that's that's it. Three Pellinia as well. Pellinia Pereira, those two, just two or three like smash hits. Yeah, you don't need any more than that. Of course, all getting no filler. That's what we want. Getting it right in the transfer market is difficult. But if you've if you think you've got a good team with some chemistry, with a good manager, with a clear idea of how to win football matches, don't don't try and rip it up because they're not sexy. Yeah. And actually, a similar kind of idea in terms of the strategy of how they played as well. Silver came in and said, "I'm, we're gonna have a go. We're gonna play the way that we play." And I think they, on some of the metrics, they were running a little bit hot for sure. And I'm a little bit nervous about them this year, but I think by sticking to that that style of play, I remember them playing against us and thinking, "This." As the pitch got wider, they just seem so. They <laughs> yeah. seem to have such width. They certainly did that last year and 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 reap the rewards for it. So Luton, so look, the team is is kind of weak at the at the moment. But I, I agree with you. I think the I don't think they'll finish bottom either. Um, if they struggle heavily and pick up very few points, though, it means the landscape of the table could change in terms of points distribution and the gaps in between the mini leagues in the Premier League could widen massively. Mm-hmm. This means the league could become almost entirely decided by April. Hopefully not. I, don't, I think those mini leagues continue. I think there's more gaps in between. The ripple of this could be that we see loads of managers getting sacked uh, in this month. Uh, this was kind of off the back of... Um, of sorry, this was in April. Um, with clubs making early plans for the following season. It also means that clubs who are in the latter stage of European competitions may be able to play heavily rotated squads and win all the European competitions. Interesting. Uh, Sheffield United. We were all ready to go. It's all about this one guy. <laughs> and, mm. then, and then he's gone and, and marched off to Marseille. So, yeah. Ilman and Dai, uh, Senegal International. Um, some of you guys uh, who don't watch the championship might be aware of him from playing against England in the World Cup, although we pumped them free now. Um, <laughs> he just transferred to Marseille, which is his boyhood uh, club. He was there as a youngster. Uh, but it looked like it wasn't going to happen. It was touted for weeks, uh, but then it looked like it had broken down from what I'd read that he'd uh, taken part of a video to, yeah. like, wholeheartedly to kind of go, I'm staying. He was taking Billy Sharp's number 10 Jersey as well. Billy Sharp narrated the video. No! Like, it was a whole thing. Oh, that's a hor- that's horrible. It'll never see the light of day. That's unless yeah. a disgruntled employee ever decides a to A Wednesday leak it. fan on the inside. <laughs> uh, so since that, there's been yet another twist in the story, and Dai is actually going to Marseille. So this means that Chevy United now uh, have the rug pulled out of them beneath them with just a couple of weeks before the season with a player who feels quite irreplaceable and the time frame's even less. In terms of the forwards that they have at the moment, 
They have uh, Bernie Traore, who did, had a good season in uh, Sweden last year. Brewster, who hasn't played since October, remember him? McBurney as well, who hasn't scored an outrageous amount of goals at that level. Had a decent season last season, but I think that was the best season he'd had since 2019-20 mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, could this result in Heckenbottom having to change his style of play or formation at the very least if they can't find a player? Because I think what is interesting in terms of these two teams... Because it feels like there's these two teams, Luton and Sheffield United, and then Burnley much higher up. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, I would agree with that. So, but these two teams, what I do like about a, a team that's not going to have more quality than the opposition generally, yeah. I do like three at the back. Uh, I thought, yeah, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. Do I you... mean, honestly, there are there is almost no scope for flexibility changing formations because Sheffield United have played 3-5-2 for like five years now and have recruited exclusively for that. So yeah. they have zero wide forwards they have no wingers so there's only so much hecking bottom can do from this point like and they, the, they, the, they can't play they can't even play a system where let's say they fix McBurney up top as a as a you know decent target man nine type and and don't rely on him for goals but they buy some proper goal threats from wide and play three four three like that's still a, a way off because they don't have any one of that profile whereas Burnley have like nine wide forwards who are goal threats <laughs> yeah. and they just rotate and they rotate and they rotate and that's a huge part of their success because they didn't have a number nine that scored goals either Sheffield United don't have the squad to, to make those tactical changes at all so it has to be three five two, or as may well be the case and this would really turn into a grit and grind kind of season which is, is likely to be without Njai you know do you just put another midfield in? you basically play three six one like a just a box midfield of, of of ratters to try and or just put some legs in there. But even They've that's a problem for them because they're not a compared to Luton. I would say their squad has a physical profile that is a lot less athletic. Um, yeah. They've got some big lads. They've got some sort of beefy British lads. Yeah, championship types. Yeah, but I wouldn't say they've got a lot of pace no. in the back line. I wouldn't say they've got a lot of pace in midfield. Although this lad Slim Slimane or Slimani they've Slimane. signed looks incredibly energetic um so i'm very concerned on a number of levels for sheffield united we're just talking about tactics here i'm concerned on a tactical level uh i'm concerned in terms of stability because their owner has been very openly trying to sell for a while i think there will be a change of ownership it's been reported it could happen in the next month or so and it just gives this impression of a club that just is not fully focused unfortunately on doing what they need to do and i I think luton Whatever you think about the quality of the players they have, I think they are fully focused on just yeah. being the best version of themselves. And that's going to be difficult for Sheffield United. I think it undermines Paul Heckingbottom, who just increasingly, I, I think, is going to just be getting frustrated at the yeah. fact that he has done such good work to get this club back to this position, to get himself to a position where he can be a Premier League manager. And it's impossible to say that he's getting the support that a manager would want in order to, again put their best foot forward and actually show what they can do. I just, I'm worried of what might come um, for Sheffield United. I'm, you know, and then just lastly, Inaman and Jai. I honestly think he's a Champions League level player. Totally agree. So, totally agree. uh, And we often say stuff like this about players who've only ever played in the championship before. And understandably, some people find it very hard uh, to accept that when it's not proven. Thank you for saying this. And you I've got in an of... Arsenal video for, for um, you know, a 2025 team. Yeah. And people are like, what? Yeah. And I was like, wait. <laughs> We've got like all the receipts from seven years of covering the championship. And don't get me wrong, it's probably not a 100% success What's rate. What's your favourite receipt? 
Uh, I've got I've got a whole drawer of them. I need to dig through to get out. But I guess, like, well, you not posted if, any of these. If I'd suits? said, if anyone had said Jude Bellingham will play for Real Madrid within three years, when he'd made ten appearances for Birmingham City, the majority of people would go like, "Yeah, all right, mate, <laughs> yeah. sure." You know, even and even on a you know he's a could be one of the best players to ever play the game. Let's be honest. So let's let's maybe go down a little bit. Michael Elise. <laughs> Eberi Eze, yeah. like all these guys, even pit players like Watkins. Maybe we're getting to a point where where Champions League level is a bit extreme, maybe because that is very much the pinnacle of the game. But like, it takes almost no time at all for them to play well in the Premier League as well as we expect them to. And then the narrative changes completely. It takes like three months for someone to get touted for an England call up, even though England have some of the most talent in world football. You can come from the championship, particularly if you're a centre-back, particularly if you're a left-footed centre-back, you can have like broadly three good months and be like, whoa, I should probably get him in, shouldn't we? Gareth, probably maybe get him in because he looks quality. (laughs) It's crazy, mate. So yeah, Illiman and Jai. But I think you start to see... Give it two years, Marseille will be selling him to PSG. Yeah. (laughs) All right, we've got it. Clip it, clip it. Pop that up. Um, Also, I was just going to say that like uh, Rasmus Hoyland... Like he was at Sturm Graz. Yeah. Like he just like did a little bounce to Atalanta, plays one season, and then he bounced into Man yeah. United. Like it can it can be done. Um, it, back to Sheffield United. I think a couple of uh, ingredients I don't like about them this year is like you say the ownership because the ownership leads to a lack of um, desire to spend funds and bring in players because that's money that you're not going to have when you, when you leave. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of the outcome, and then the second thing, I think I do feel like it does carry an element of weight because I think we've seen this, say, for example, with with Norwich City, Bournemouth was the other side of it where Bournemouth, they went down, took them a season to get back up like Sheffield United and then went up and they did spend, <laughs> they did spend a lot of money. I think they spent it well and they also kept the nucleus of the team there, but they were able to kind of freshen it up and rejuvenate it. And also got off to a solid start. Gary Neal did, you know, did obviously an incredible job despite the 9-0 defeat to Liverpool. Forget that one. So for Sheffield United, in terms of a team that kind of went down, mm. took a season and then has come back up, mm-hmm. th- what they miss out on, I feel, is that extra energy mm-hmm. that you have as a Norwich, as, that you had not as a Norwich City the first time up, but you didn't have the squad. And then you had a better squad, but you didn't have the energy because you get beat down because you were, it's kind of in your mind a little bit. I think that first season, Brentford at first home. Blades first season finished ninth in the Prem. Exactly. Top half. Huddersfield Town back, yeah. at, like, you know, a few years ago. I know what you're saying. I think that plays a part in this as well. Final thing in terms of the, the structure of the team and how they play. Talk, spoke about Slomani. He's um, from Bromby, two million. He's got a similar profile to Tommy Doyle. But I did want to talk about those outgoings because McAtee and Tommy Doyle in particular, Jack O'Connell and Billy Sharp, Jack O'Connor's had to retire at the age of 29. Yeah. And Billy Sharp not being offered a new contract, although, you know, stay close to your phone, Billy, you might be getting caught. Um, <laughs> to lose those two leaders and then to lose those two exciting loan players. And again, you might get, you might be able to get them back. Yeah. Um, well, they can only get big... one, you can only get one from another Premier League club. So yes. I think that's what they're probably trying to work out. I'm sure City will be happy to send Paul Heckingbottom another player because he, he did a good job with McAtee and Doyle. They, neither of them, went in and were a superstar straight away. They both, mm. certainly McAtee had some some really tough games and I think it was to Heckingbottom's credit that he stuck with him and by the end of the season he was impacting games, scoring important goals. A Doyle 
you know, uh, he's more of a deeper box-to-box midfielder rather than a, a properly attacking midfielder. Um, McAtee's a kind of final third guy, I would say. Doyle's a middle third guy. Um, I don't think their departures have to be a massive issue. I think, as you've said, I think Slimane is the is the Doyle, is the legs. I think they probably need more of that in midfield mm. uh, in order to, to handle Premier League midfields where every single Premier League central midfielder is... Everything. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I think that would say like a Barry Bannon coming up into the championship. It's like as wonderful as he's been, when you come up, there's there's a rise in every single um, element of the game. Yeah, Sharp Sharp and O'Connell. I mean, O'Connell hasn't played for about two years because of this horrible chronic knee injury that's led to him retiring so young. Um, And Billy Sharp is a lot as a as a leader, as a talisman. Um, Probably not as much of an impact in terms of. as an actual player. So for me, it's like, you and Jai, 10 out of 10 loss. All the others, you know, 7 out of 10 max. Yeah. And I think also in terms of, so McAtee averaged 112 uh, uh, carrying yards with the ball uh, per 90. Mm-hmm. And Doyle, it, it was, um, his passes into the final third last season was 4.85, which yeah. is really solid. Um, Norwood, obviously, above that, 7.76. But th- those kind of players, again, what I really liked about maybe a bit of a blueprint from Brentford, which I think was actually initially a blueprint from Brighton. Yeah. Think of how Brighton changed their way of playing. I think you might see that with Brentford a little bit this year. Yeah. Um, because that's they know that that's how you evolve. Yeah. You come in, you harden, then you gently soften. That's it. And I think for Sheffield United, in terms of those players being huge losses, you're not going to have that same dominance. Yeah. And so it's actually, you'd be much better off having a Yanelt. <laughs> like for sure, the yeah, door. mate, absolutely. I mean, look at Norgard. He's, he's been absolutely unbelievable for Brentford. And, you know, so much so that they basically can't shift him. Anyone they try and sign, Norgard just, just rises above it. So uh, I, I agree. I think life is pretty unfair in some ways for Ollie Norwood because he has won, like we call him the championship cheat code because he's won f- four promotions, maybe five in the last six or seven years. All f- I think all... I was going to say all for different clubs, but now this must be two for Sheffield United. Like he's he's a, a magnificent metronome at Championship level. Yeah, unfortunately, sure. he's not athletic. He doesn't cover ground laterally. If if you, you don't want, well, you just wouldn't be confident in him doing enough out of possession. And every single time he has won promotion as a key player, by the way, for basically all of these teams. They've all gone like, ah, sorry, mate. We're going to buy a, a DM. I, and that's, that's what I, I know they haven't signed anyone of that profile yet, but my sources tell me that there's a defensive midfielder coming soon. Okay. From Espanyol. Don't know his name. Right. So that to me is just the classic. Thanks, Ollie Norwood, for being the championship cheat code again. And um, if you wouldn't mind, we'll just pop you on ice for maybe next year. We might need you again. We're going to talk about Burnley because in terms of a team dominating possession, they certainly did that last year. Can they do it in the Premier League? You're listening to The Ripple Effect. We'll be back off this. Last one on Burnley. This is a belter of The, of the Ripple Effect. Who will be the EFL Player of the Year? Um, they've got a kid called Pierre Equa. Oof. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. 
Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. You're listening to The Ripple Effect with me, James Lawrence Alcott, and Ali Maxwell from Not The Top 20 Podcast. It's time to talk about Burnley. Yes. A lot of people excited about Burnley. A passion of mine. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Was it a passion of yours two years ago? I guess they were in the Prem then, weren't they? Yeah, I actually kind of. You know, I host the uh, Athletic Football Tactics podcast and we did talk about Sean Dyche a lot because from a tactical point of view, there's certainly one way of looking at it that he was very one-dimensional and not as interesting as some of the top managers, but therefore by default, I felt he was quite interesting. Yeah. And, their, and their success for a fairly prolonged period of time, uh, certainly relative to the budget that they had, was uh, very notable. So I would say I was... Somewhat passionate about Dyche's Burnley, but more passionate about Company's Burnley. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, incredible job to turn it around. I think sometimes you need to be able to have access to the right ingredients. And he was able, he did have carte blanche. He does have gravitas. He did have a very clear idea of what he wanted to do. And mm-hmm. then he also kind of had the parachute payments to, to do that. Mm-hmm. But then there's also some players in that team that were playing under Dyche, you know, like, likes of Jack Cork, likes of Brownhill as well who were used in a very different way, mm-hmm. and they tore it up. Now, there are certain... Uh, you must see this, especially doing the tactics pod, that certain things go, oh, that's a thing now. And so one thing one thing that I, I felt like over the last 18 months, two things have become proper tactical things for me. One of which is... One of which is the cross from in line with the 18-yard box. Yeah. Does that make sense? In so, swinger uh, or out swinger specifically? Out swinger generally to the back post, but the important thing is that the cross doesn't come from out wide. It actually comes from in line with the 18 yard box. Right. Trippier so, does so it a lot. De Bruyne well, does it a lot. I, I think Odegaard say, will do it a lot this year. It'll often be the right sided centre midfielder. Yes. Won't it? Or, yeah, or I guess Trent. with Newcastle. New, <laughs> yes. Or a right back that's like frighteningly good. Yeah. Like Trent, like Trippier. So that's one thing. The other thing is the cut in and bang. The cutting and bang. This year, you're going to see it absolutely everywhere. Son loves it, but Burnley love it. And it Benson. Love it. it was Benson, right? <laughs> yeah. Benson's yeah. cutting and bang. He is at the forefront of this movement. <laughs> he scored like... But I saw him Buemo do it the other day, and then I, I sort of turned to my mate and, and goes, Sil- yeah, he, he does it all the time. Scored. Sorry, De Silva, De Silva. Yeah, yeah, he said, De Silva did it, and I said... I'm seeing that everywhere. And he said, and Buemo does that all the time. That's our thing. And I was like, it's not, no. it's not your thing, mate. Well, I mean, I and Robin be listening to this being like, come on, lads. It's maybe my thing. Yeah, fair enough. Doing that for years. But I definitely take your point. I, I would say one of my big things over the last year or two, <laughs> in the way that I think about football and what's important in terms of uh, squads that have succeeded, is I think generally football fans know not to think of the number nine the striker is the be all and end all anymore i think that has been chipped away at what do you mean bit. by be all and end all? Uh, you don't need a 20 goal season striker right like you just don't need that okay because 
Need a 50 goals. Because the <laughs> wide forwards are scoring. Yes, right, right. So much more than the old school wingers ever did. If you look at, it's actually really interesting, the top, I have to try and dredge up some uh, some some research here that I haven't got written in front of me, but just quickly going back to the championship, the top six highest goal scoring teams in the championship last season, their top scorers, only one of them was an actual number nine. So you had like Akpom scoring, top goal scorer in the whole league, wasn't playing number nine for Burroughs, playing second striker. Um, Burnley's top scorers were Teller, who played a really fluid role, kind of drifting all across the front line and often running in behind, making kind of number nine type runs, but very clearly not profiled as a number nine. Joel Perrault, Swansea, definitely not an out-and-out number nine, has always looked better with a proper nine in front of him, giving him the space to take the shots that he likes to take, which are generally from the edge of the box. Burnley, Ashley Barnes barely scored a goal. I think he only scored one goal at home all season. That was Burnley's starting striker. They won wow. almost every game at home and their striker didn't score until like the last game of the season because their wide forwards, Zaruri, Benson, Teller, whoever it was, were scoring goals as well. So um, certainly in terms of like the importance of having a threat from wide has become massive over the last few years, partly as a result of this like narrowing of defensive structures, which took place now probably like 10 years ago. I think I always think of Simeone's Atletico Madrid on this front where they just went like 4-4-2, deep to mid-block yeah. and the narrowest thing you've ever seen. And we can basically turn defending into cross it in and see what happens. And if we've got big, angry blokes in the middle who can head it away, we think that's a pretty good defensive approach. Yeah. So then the top teams had to go, okay, Barcelona, for example, Pep had to go, I can't. I can't just ticky-tacker through the middle anymore with, with my false nine and my amazing technical centre midfielders. I can't do that because there just isn't space unless you have Messi. So my wide forwards better, you know, better increase the threat from wide. Around. And now I think that is a massive, massive factor of, of football, both at the top level and then, as it often does, it drips down to the championship, normally takes a couple of years, and that's what we see in the champ now. If you've got 1v1 dribbling ability coupled with someone with a decent shot on them, that is absolutely dynamite. And that's what Burnley had. Yeah, and they were. They were absolutely dynamite. It's interesting, like, Teller back at Southampton now, um, which is why, and I'm gonna, I am going to show you my predictions. That's why like, I think he could, it'd be interesting to see what league he's playing in. Yeah. Like, if if he would want to, if he's going to be pushing for a move to kind of get back to Burnley or or if he'll stay where he is and, and destroy it again. Mm. But that's a frightening player to have in, uh, in their locker for Southampton. Let's go through Bur- uh, Burnley in terms of how they played a little bit because I think there's some questions that I, d- I did want to ask you. Mm-hmm. First of all, like, so uh, Murich, who was from uh, Man City, am I right in saying that? Yes. He, he was fantastic last year. So average 41 touches per 90 last season. It was in the top 11% uh, for the top eight leagues in Europe. They also stopped 10.9 crosses per 90 last season as well. Yet they brought in Trafford. Yeah. Who also did brilliantly, but obviously in a, a league lower. Everyone will be, kind of be expecting Trafford to, to be the starter. Do you yeah. think he will be? Good question. I was surprised because you're right. Murich was good. There were a couple of games in particular where, well, one very big game in particular where they lost to Sheffield United, who they were, we thought, vying for the title for at the time. In the end, they pulled clear, of course. They lost to Sheffield United fairly heavily. And Sheffield United were just sticking everything on Murich from set-piece situations. And although he's very tall, he didn't look very happy, very comfortable with that that sort of level of physicality. So that was then flagged up as a concern for Burnley. And frankly, it didn't seem to affect them that much. So maybe it was just a bad game. But that 
because of that and because of the risks he took in possession, which always gives fans the willies, uh, and because of a couple of errors on that front, which is, is was always going to happen, um, there became this idea that Muric was a bit shaky, a bit shaky aerially, and that, you know, because of the, the possession stuff, um, he was a bit shaky. I don't think that was probably fair or true. So, uh, yeah, I, I was... I'm really excited that they've signed James Trafford and I assume that they've done so because they think that he will be England's number one in three years time and they'll they'll have been the ones to kind of get in there and give that opportunity and then benefit from that both financially and also in what he can do. But uh, it's definitely interesting um, given the ability that Muric has too. Mm. Got him on a bit. Of, do you think that's a bargain as well, by the way? 15 mil with 5 mil add-on? <laughs> Because uh, that's been a bit of a discussion. At it was a big discussion. I I, yeah, I care so little about um, transfer fees that I I don't know. That's yeah, fine. I, think I love it, that. Actually. Yes, Let's yes. Move on. That's I fine. think it's a bargain because I think it will look like a bargain in two years' time. Okay. Midfield. Uh, there's another thing, and if you want to see the quotation marks that both myself and Ali have done in this podcast and see them, uh, you can do that exclusively on Spotify. Mm. But of course, you can get this podcast uh, anywhere. But ideally, because I'm in Spotify Studios, you'd listen to it on Spotify. Um, the midfield, the, another thing, sorry, is the sort of return of the Regista. There's a title for the tactics Hello. pod. Um, let's do a video on it first. The, there's, we think, me and Kai have been talking about this, like who's your who's your 100-touch guy? There's nice. going to be a lot of players. So Trent will be a 100-touch guy this year. Yeah. Uh, Kai, who else are we thinking of? I can't remember. The it's base. often like outside centre-backs in the three, isn't it? Or full-backs these but I, days. But yeah, but I think it's going to be those midfielders some... as well. Like who will have that dominant, like a lot of man-to-man marking in modern midfields. Difficult to get a hundred touches. But also a lot of a lot of players and teams sort of they'll drop off a little bit because yeah. of that that reason. Or you got yourself your your fullback that moves into midfield. Maybe Reese James might fancy a little bit of that. that Tactics are fun, well. aren't they? They are. <laughs> if only there was a podcast exclusively about that. Uh, but Josh Brownhill. Mm. Uh, sorry, sorry, Cullen um, was the hundred touch guy yeah. last year. Yeah. Can Norwood? You're saying ain't up to it, but this in this Burnley team, can Cullen be the hundred touch guy? Can that continue? Um, Company said it's not. You know, it's not non-negotiable in terms of having that dominance of possession, but it obviously, if you've got the ball, they haven't scored yet. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you think Cullen will thrive in the Prem? Uh, I'm I'm only worried about the his physical level. And it's a shame to keep coming back to this because I love technical players so much and he's fantastic technically. Um, but we've discussed that there is just the water level rises so much, particularly in the centre of the park, in terms of the physicality of the players that you're coming up against. And anyone who's played any football in the playground or professionally or anywhere in between knows that if you're playing against someone, your opposite man, who's bigger and stronger and faster than you, it makes it more difficult for the most part. So... Cullen is not very big and he's not particularly quick. He doesn't cover a ground hugely quickly. He's not like a, a sprinter. He's not athletic. Mm. So that's a concern more out of possession. I guess in possession, I do believe he's got that incredible um, mentality of the basically what you need in this exact position. He can receive the ball facing any which way. He seems to have an idea of where to take his first touch in order to move away from pressure and, and has a good judgment of where and when to pass and who to pass to, whether to go through the lines or whether to recycle. So I think um, mentally he's excellent. He came from Anderlecht where he played with company and I think that had a massive impact on the whole team. They just had a guy in arguably the most important position in the pitch who already knew all the answers to the exam when company walked in. I think that made a massive difference. Yeah. Norwood is a is a different player, I'm afraid. Like he's He's not what I've just described. He is 
He's just he's like a big sprayer. He's yeah. a, he's just the big switch guy. <laughs> Cullen's not going to hit back. Cullen doesn't doesn't want to hit a load of passes over the top. He doesn't want to. I don't think he wants to play like raking crossfield balls. Um, you know, I, I call it pippity popping. He's a pippity popper. There you go. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty confident. Um, I guess sadly it might be Jack Cork that therefore has the bigger question mark around him because could we upgrade Jack Cork with an absolute physical specimen and and that could that then raise the level of the team because Cullen can do what he does possibly. Yes, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, and I think probably something they kind of do need is that little bit more physicality. It brought in some players that I think are also interesting to sort of put to you. Um, in particular, Dar O'Shea. Mm. I like Dar O'Shea. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's played, you know, he's played at right back for West Brom. He obviously plays centre back as well. He'll kind of come in here. He's probably going to take hold of Bellis's role. Yeah. Um, how much of a loss is Harbour Bellis? And do you think Darashay is ready to fill those shoes? Because, and again, I think what I would suggest is that I believe that, okay, there'll be games where Burnley, like most teams, you have to curl up into a ball to a point and just mm-hmm. concerned with trying to keep the score down um, to a point. But I, I think there'll only be a few teams that they do that with because I think... And as I just said this about Arsenal is a good example for anyone who doesn't know too much about these teams. If you have a style of play and it's possession based and it's really ingrained and has success, mm-hmm. if you can do things quickly, you, you can have answers. Football's about having answers. And I think Burnley had so many answers there. And at times had teams beaten before they kind of even stepped out on the pitch, which Definitely. is a very Man City sort of thing. Yeah. But I think they could zip the ball about the way that they did in the championship, in mm-hmm. the Premier League against a lot of teams there. And so a bit like Fulham, I think they should stick with that plan A and shouldn't yeah. turn away from it, I as you might agree. see with Sheffield United. Mate, I think about this a lot, just generally in terms of moving up to the Premier League with this kind of style of play. Clearly, you're wincing when you think about them trying to do it against big six teams, against uh, against Newcastle, let's say. Yeah. But those aren't the fixtures that matter. I'm, f- I'm afraid. Totally. You need to. You need to be not in the bottom three of a group of 14 teams, essentially, or 13, 12 teams now. Brighton are unbelievable. So let's say that's that's your mini league. And in order to, I, I used to think Bournemouth did this really interestingly under Eddie Howe because they used to concede so many goals. Bournemouth, <laughs> like you'd look at the end of the season, you'd be like, "How have yeah. you finished 14? You conceded 70 goals, and then they score more than Man United because they they conceded." They'd, they'd lose 6-0 to City. They'd lose 5-0 to Liverpool. Fine. Because they refuse to change the way they play against those teams. I think, I don't know how you measure this, but I strongly believe doing that, rather than making compromises and changes, helps you in those other fixtures against your Fulhams, your Crystal Palaces. I see, I see no reason why Burnley would change or will change. I think it's the best thing they can do. Interestingly, I think the way that they play is actually... It's funny because it's so exciting. They scored so many goals and they were such a great team to watch. We want to talk about their attacking play, but they they were an unbelievable defensive team because of their dominance in their style of play. Like it's a, it's as much a defensive tactic as it is an sure, attacking yeah. tactic because if you have the ball, then the opposition isn't hurting you. We've never seen them under company roll Not into a ball, ball and yeah. have to defend their box. That wasn't their reality last year. So, of course, there's a bit of unknown there in those games where they're going to have to do that. What will that look like? We don't know. But they can be in charge of making sure that the, that the 50% of their games that matter the most, they are doing what they do 
And that for me is is just the most important thing in the world. I think that's such a great point in terms of uh, taking on even the best teams in that way. Is because I used to do the I used to find this one. Um, you'd play like great team, great team, and go. This yeah. is quick. I am out of my depth here. We're getting pumped, whatever it may be. And then you play a team down the bottom. And you go, oh, like this is yeah. Oh, okay. like I can get that pass through now, yeah. or I can make that tackle, or I've seen like I've got to cover this space a little bit quicker. Yeah, and actually, we, we know enough now that uh, I think the last ten promoted championship teams, sorry, the last ten championship winning teams, the winners of the league, eight of them have stayed up. The two examples are both Norwich, as discussed earlier won the championship twice, went down straight away twice. Every other team has stayed up. Many of them fairly comfortably. Some of them have ended up top half, like Leeds, for example, like Wolves. So in my head, I'm Burnley for me are, even though they played in the second tier of English football two months ago and for the last year, in my head, Burnley are like, I'm pitching them as basically a 11th to 14th base team. I have absolutely no concerns about them whatsoever. I agree. Well, the one thing I, I wonder if this is, this will reveal itself is that once stats reveal themselves to you, will that change the kind of, again, the lens of which people like look at stuff like that and then add a new level of like expectation and pressure on teams? Right, Whereas yeah. like say Fulham absolutely destroyed it, yet everyone still thought they were going to be, you know, down the bottom last season. Yeah. And so they didn't kind of have that that pressure to deal with. Yeah. Whereas I wonder if people are going, because I, I feel the same a little bit, and I'm going to show you my predictions in a second. Ipswich. Yeah. I feel like people were sort of putting Sunderland on Ipswich a little bit. Okay. Do you see what I mean? Like that kind of recency bias of the previous season or, or of certain stats reveal themselves can, can lead to like a different narrative in the, in the media. Because I do think the narrative that gets spun can does infiltrate so you think because squads. Sunderland came up and made the playoffs now people are like you can come up and make the playoffs I think there's I think was, there's a lot the... of similarities between yeah, Sunderland yeah. and Ipswich in terms of a good squad with exciting players that kind of came up I, I thought Sunderland would do well last season I put them quite high in my prediction yeah see I got led by stats there which I'm sad about because no league one promoted team had finished above like 16th in the champ for about four years so we loved we we really liked the look of Sunderland yeah and I remember saying on our predictions, like, we got them 16th and then did, like, the most positive bit ever and then went, like, but no teams in the last five years has finished above 16th, so there's obviously some invisible ceiling. Turns out there isn't. No. Well, so 8%, uh, what was it, got into the playoffs uh, la- from League One over the last 20 years in terms of teams that have gone up. So you never know. Yeah. It might, it might happen. There, there is... There is... There's quite a, There is a specific momentum yes that can exist does not exist for every title winning team but can exist for a title winning team that has a big impact again it's that mix isn't it between quality players because people aren't doing the same with Plymouth yeah but kind of understandably so because of the the sort of ceiling of a lot of the players in that Ipswich squad yeah. what, what, what it feels like which is probably a bit unfair and Plymouth fans are probably so. yeah uh, right Final ripple effect. One player, actually, we didn't touch about this, but uh, Ian Matson feels like a big loss for me. It'd be interesting to see what happens there uh, if he kind of goes back. In terms of his development, mm. it would make sense for him to go back there. Um, but he has been used in the uh, preseason games. So here we go. Last one on Burnley. This is a belter of a, of a ripple effect. It's great. So it was actually Pep Guardiola who signed Nathan Redmond for Burnley. 
So Nathan Redmond's gone to Burnley. In 2017, yeah, you know where I'm going. People will remember that Pep walked over to Redmond. I actually watched the clip this morning. And it is like, it's, it's a so lot. It's so weird, isn't it? It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it's, and if it is what we think he was saying, which was like, why are you playing here? Like, you're better than this kind of thing. That's you're a better player than this. He walked over to Redmond at the end of the Man City versus Southampton match. And I think it was one where it was actually quite a tight game and Sterling scored a cut in and bang it mm-hmm. and, uh, and won the game for them. Anyway, he effectively had a rant in his face after the match. But the basis of the rant was that he was too good to be playing in defence in a defensive Southampton system at the time under Pellegrino. Remember him? Mm-hmm. We also know by now that Vincent Company was heavily uh, does have a heavy Guardiola influence in his characteristics as a manager, but also in his transfer dealings. We've seen heavy dealings with Man City, such as Muric, Trafford and Harwood Bellis, etc., but the pep rant at Redmond could be the strangest influence yet with company having played in that game. <laughs> Amazing. Even just like 2%, maybe. Pep thinks he's decent. <laughs> Interesting little sign there. Like, so both Redmond and Andros Townsend going to Burnley. which I, Andros. I, yeah, I quite like, I like a little sprinkling of experience. They've got like 10 enough, wingers. Yeah, enough wingers for sure. Uh, there is, a, I quite like this uh, tactical thing where... I think you can play three wingers now. <laughs> it sounds weird, but I think, well, are they on their I way think in? you can play three wingers now because the number 10 role is, is dying a bit of a death outside of you know, some very specific and elite teams. I think you can basically play 4-2-3-1 where you've got three wingers. And I actually think Burnley and Nathan Teller are a pretty good example of what I'm talking about. Burnley would play with Zaruri and let's say Benson and with Teller. Those are... You know, Teller's considered to be a winger, but he wasn't playing fixed to the wing. But if you looked at his heat map, I bet you most of his touches were outside the centre of the pitch. So I think you can play with three wingers now. So having 10 in your squad makes sense. I think the tempo of a game is like, it's more, it's less sort of this, you know, back and forth, back and forth. And so with that, you can get a better understanding of the pitch and the positions of the team within that pitch. And then you can kind of, you'll understand those roles better. So you can easily just swap in and out as well. Yeah. That's the other thing. So, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it helps with uh, creating wide overloads, which people love Dude. these days. Yeah. yeah, I love them. Right, here we go. So, these are my predictions. Oh, here we go. Right. You can see, I'll show you the whole thing. And the whole thing will be on my channel, guys. I'm going to go check that out. Bottom three. Mm-hmm. Huddersfield. Yeah. Sheffield Wednesday. Yes. Preston. Okay. I've basically <laughs> I've applied the jaded nature of Queen's Park Rangers onto the back of Preston North right, End because okay. I needed to get someone else down there yep. and then of course in 21st place Rotherham QPR in 20th well done fingers crossed and at the top I keep I keep going between f- these two relegating Warnock tough scene well Warnock won't be there <laughs> yeah he, yeah, exactly. He likes to have Christmas off, doesn't All he? All three of those managers won't be there by the end of the season, obviously. Yeah. And at the top, I've got the three relegated teams in the top three positions. Uh. Leicester, who, like you said, I, I've got Leicester third. Yeah. I keep getting confused by their squad because I'm just like, that's an amazing squad. But I keep thinking about the Leicester City squad that went down last time and... Do you remember like Martin Keown was playing centre back for them? Do you know what I mean? They just sort of bought, they just had names, right? But didn't have the energy required. So I think they've got okay. a hell of a lot of quality there. And my problem is, I then looked at like Pereira, Castagne, um, Dewsbury Hall. There is a certain amount of energy there. Um, but so I might be totally wrong with that. The most, the most important thing, just quickly on Leicester for me, is uh, it can be such a problem when 
there's a big group of players that are so known for being top level players that you worry they might not be up for it playing in the championship. I, I believe that if Maresca is as good as Leicester want him to be, being Pep's former assistant, George Sampaoli's former assistant, best best mates with Roberto De Zerbi, if he's that, if he's in that ilk, I think that helps players the sort of players that we're talking about go, you know what? I think this guy is worth sticking around for. And that, Could then you're you. just laughing. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. There is a lot of, like, I've seen this before, like those players, when there's players that are over the age of 28 and feel like they're a Premier League player, yeah. just like, don't, they don't want to be there. Like, yeah. it just feels dampened in some way. So for I sure. feel like that might play a part, but I think they'll come back strong because they've got so much money. Um but yes, all a bit up in the air, it still seems. And then I keep moving around this Leeds and Southampton, Southampton and Leeds. Mm-hmm. I've gone with Leeds. Yeah. But I don't know if it's just because I've gone with Leeds that now my gut's moving back to Southampton. I think Southampton's I think maybe a lot just of fun. something dodgy. Huh? If your gut's moving around that much, I think you just <laughs> make sure you leave it in the oven a bit longer. Um, you went with Leeds. George, you yeah. didn't want to go with Leeds. Let's be honest. Um, you to go with I wasn't as on, I wasn't. Give me an exclusive. I wasn't all in on Leeds. No, no. Um, but George is—he's uh, got an incredible mind, honestly, and and he's also got an incredible record of picking winners of the championship. We got four, we are we've got four in a row. Yeah, come on. So five, um, one, five. So when he felt very strongly about Leeds, I wanted to go with him because I was flip flopping a bit like you. I just couldn't, I couldn't find the. The, the sort of solidity in my opinion because uh, too many question marks over all of them so you know I was I'm getting blinded by Leeds looking like they're a bit behind because the takeover took a while the Farker appointment took a while they're, they're just getting rid of so many players because they, they got such bad vibes after relegation and they haven't brought in that many players so you're yet to see the sort of you know it's hard to picture what the new team looks like um but there's so there's so much quality in there and academy quality there that have gone oh. off and come back. Mate, if like, they go full under twenty threes, that'd be so exciting. Still be a good team. They've got yeah. a ridiculous amount yeah. of of youngsters. Yeah, and the, in, uh, there's so many goals in that team as well. And the average age is twenty three point nine. Archie Gray, Lewis Bay, Gail Hart, who was at Sunderland last year. You know, Bamford's going to want to probably want to stick around. Actually, Willie Nonto. Willie Nonto, yeah, Somerville. I think he wants like... to leave. I saw something this morning saying he's desperate to leave. But Willy, yeah, again, Willy if they... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Nobody Nonto. No, forget it. <laughs> the, um... But I do think Southampton would be great fun. Final question. Who will be the EFL Player of the Year? Uh, not an award, but fine. Um... <laughs> <laughs> what do they call it then? Who's... There's Cham- one in each what? room. Championship Player of the Year. Championship Player. <laughs> Sorry. I'm being facetious. Sorry, I'm used to, I'm used to YouTube um, I'm titles. I'm being so I'm facetious. Um, great. I'm going to leave out the three relegated teams because, I mean, any of their players could be superstars if they're up for it. Alcaraz, by the way, I think. Yes. I, I'm I'm led to believe he could be a bit of fun. Um, yeah, I think I think it could be a Sunderland player. And again, there's a few options here. I think if Jack Clark stays for the whole season, he could be 15 goals, 10 assists kind of thing, which is sensational. Um, they've got a kid called Pierre Equa. Oh, he was there last season and he is a French midfielder who needed a bit of time to settle. <laughs> and so I'm like, OK, let's not let's not worry about him. Yeah, yeah. Let's, you know, we'll get to him at some point. And then from April onwards, Mowbray put him in the team and he looked absurdly good. Just like big centre mid, ball carrier, snapping at heels, 
good decision makers. He's not just dribbling for the sake of it, but he'll you know bounce one twos off off players around him. I like. I can't wait to watch Sunderland this year. They've got so many fun players, and honestly, Equa, maybe it's a stretch because he's still so young. But if he plays like how I think he can play consistently, whew, serious yeah. serious player. Okay, jot it down, guys. Um, Ali, absolute James. joy, mate. Chatting Thank to you, mate. Always good fun. Yeah. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Well, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Um, you can find me on the Not The Top 20 podcast. Uh, we cover the EFL, all three divisions with passion, insight, humour. That's the tagline. Can I just say, so with the podcast, Monday is great because they go through all three divisions and you get that little taste of each. Uh, mm. of each, And they don't do draws, which I always think is really clever. Don't talk about draws. But Thursday's good. Thursday's a great podcast, especially if you want to kind of go... Because, look, we, we live in a world now where there's a lot of predictions happening all the time, okay? And it's great fun to get it right. But to have the guys talk about the different leagues and the big games that are coming up and, and what could happen, I actually really enjoy the first day pod. Thank you very much. I enjoyed doing that as well. Um, we've just launched a written EFL publication, which we think is, is basically the first of its kind. It's a newsletter through Substack. So um, those who sign up will be getting a minimum three EFL articles a week. And we're basically, again, trying to provide both news and then some opinion and some analysis. I think it's really difficult for EFL fans to find that without having to go on like four different websites and three different social media platforms. So the EFL newsletter by NTT20 is the big thing for us at the moment on NTT20.com. And then the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I think there's a chance. Don't need to be rivals. I think there's a good chance. If you enjoy listening to James, you'll enjoy listening to that. Yeah, we're all eight. We're all just waffling. A lot of hours in the Although day. Although you aren't guys it? aren't waffling. You guys back it up incredibly well. I love waffling. That's why I've enjoyed being on this pod. It's been good times. <laughs> right, uh, guys. Uh, final thing to do, of course, is let's get ourselves to 5K. Okay? Yeah. Let me beg once more. We have to. Um, support the podcast. It allows us to get wonderful guests uh, like Ali Maxwell in the building because he goes, hang on a minute, 3K, 3K followers. I said, didn't I? Where I said, is? until you get to 3K, yeah, I'm, mate, not, I'm not getting out of bed. Exactly. Because you're big time. Okay. So if you want to continue with guests of the caliber of Ali Maxwell, then you know what to do. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. The season's very close, isn't it? Come on, Queen's Park Rangers. Do something. Do it now.